Welcome to Altered State of Affairs, the podcast with Gerald Kazimov, produced by the team at CasSource and part of the CasSource Podcast Network. Altered State of Affairs, the novel also by Gerald Kazimov, is available at your favorite bookstore, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble Online, and most local and indie bookstores. Chapter 10, Geneva on the Lake. As the end of June 1963 approached, the anticipation of the summer climax at the cottage began to increase. Everything was going as planned. The acquisition of food was about halfway complete. There were approximately six weeks before the big blowout. That would certainly be enough time to accumulate and stockpile enough nourishment to sustain us for two weeks on the shores of Lake Erie. Six weeks meant at least that many fancy open house parties that would allow the benevolent BATs to honor their hosts with housewarming gifts. Our concept of housewarming was different than most. The bounty marched out the door. It was for a good cause. The stockpiling of beer, on the other hand, was not proceeding well. In fact, it seemed to diminish as time went on. The Good Brothers were depleting the inventory faster than we were able to replenish it. If this were a large company, a second and third shift protocol would have to be implemented. According to the laws of economics, either we acquired more product or decreased the daily consumption to build up an adequate reserve for the future. We needed to accumulate two weeks of brew inventory to satisfy the insatiable thirst of the BATs and any invited guests, namely females. So let's do the math. Six weeks to go, and our supply was being consumed at the rate of 16 cases per day. At that burn rate and current acquisition pace of new product, we would run out of beer one week before the festivities at Geneva on the Lake commenced. Therefore, an emergency intervention was required to triple our stock over the next six weeks just to make sure. There was only one solution, call in the troops. We enlisted older brothers and sisters, neighbors, or anyone with real or fake IDs, whatever it took. We worked day and night and started to make headway, but we fell short. With just one week to go, we hit the break-even point. That is, input and output stabilized, but we we're not able to accumulate any excess. We we're so close and yet so far away. It was out of the question to inaugurate our cotton sabbatical with an inadequate supply of suds. We were BATs. We would not falter. As president and operations leader, it was up to me. Suddenly, at 4 a.m., when the best ideas came my way, I received a revelation. Mabel and I almost had a wet dream. For those of you who remember, Mabel was that famous raunchy barmaid in the television commercial, Hey Mabel, Black Label. Earlier that spring, I had noticed a help-wanted ad for the Carling Brewery Company targeted to college students. Like most large wineries and breweries, they promoted their products with samples and tasting sessions. Why hadn't I thought of this earlier? The next day, I summoned the brothers for an emergency meeting and told them of my plan. All the guys with fake IDs were instructed to apply for jobs at Carlin, down in the flats along the infamous and very flammable Cuyahoga River. The brewery was constructed in the last century and looked its age. It was a dark and foreboding warehouse with 
huge copper vats that were connected with elongated, corroded, steam-emitting pipes that appeared like the monsters from the horror movie Them. Rumors were rampant that the water supply came from the river. As the cases of beer came off the assembly line, our job would be to stack them on wooden skids. That seemed easy enough until we did it for 15 minutes. Six cases of beer in each row stacked five high. It was hard to do for five minutes, very difficult for an hour, and practically impossible for a full day. As I looked around, everyone else had made a career of skid loading. Wow. Two guys paired up for each skid. They worked in unison. Perfect harmony. The fourth and fifth rows were the most exhausting because the cases had to be lifted the highest. Once loaded, the wooden beast was replaced within 15 seconds by an empty monster. You had 60 seconds to rest your burning muscles before the torture repeated. Our foreman was this enormous black dude, Leroy, a great guy. He had gone to Cleveland Glenville High School and had played linebacker at a junior college before having a tryout with the Browns. He made their taxi squad for a year before being cut. Now he was married with two little girls and had a very limited future. He was foreman of this particular assembly line, but probably had advanced as far as he could. Being the manager of conveyor belt number 17 at the Carling Brewery was not on my top 10 list of goals. Leroy was cool. He understood that we would only be there for a few weeks and that our rather short-term goal was to obtain as much beer as we could. We soon realized that he was going to be our savior. With Leroy's help, it was a piece of cake to load an endless amount of beer into our cars at the conclusion of each shift. We invited him as our VIP guest to the BAT summer extravaganza. Leroy was excited. Not only had he made friends with kids from the suburbs, he had also temporarily extended his horizon past football in the slums. So with one day to spare, we officially reached our beer goals thanks to our new best friend. Our brewski problems were solved, and Leroy was about to spend the best two weeks of his life as an honorary BAT. So Geneva on the Lake, as you're reading that, I'm thinking about these issues that you're going through as a young man, and it makes me think of kids in general, no matter what generation they're from, as they're developing and going through things that you're going through something that's very age appropriate, that is going to develop you and your friends, your fraternity brothers, as leaders one day. It was all about the beer, right? Yeah. But at that time, that was seemed like the most important thing in your life. And whatever it took, you were going to get it done. And it's no different than kids on the playground and they're deciding who's going to pick teams and who's going to be the leader and who's going to be this. These are very important parts of life that we all go through that set up hierarchies and leaders and followers and all these things. But it seems to me that VATs, for whatever reason, and maybe it was this time with the beer and all that, that established the leaders that you all would soon or someday become. When I say all that, is that true? Is that what you were going through at the time to develop these life skills, but doing it in an age-appropriate thing and maybe doing maybe not appropriate things? Well, <laughs> Ohio, had, at that time, I'm not sure what their laws are now, but there was an 18 age for 3.2% beer. And this was back when I was in high school and junior high school. So you have to drink a lot of beer with 3.2% before you get a buzz, as they say. 
I mean, you probably get sick before you got high. So you had to have a lot of beer. And as president, I had the responsibility to make sure that the Geneva on the Lake week, sometimes there were two in past years, but that it was totally successful. And I couldn't mess it up on my watch. I mean, BAT has been going on for almost 100 years now. And they've been going to Geneva on the Lake. And so it's this little town, turn of the century little town. I was there recently. It looks the same as it did 50, 60, 70 years ago. Little cottages. It's great. Very quintessential. And we used to have a custom that every summer we would end the summer with a blowout week, Geneva on the Lake. They had festivities and you knocked the clown off the seat and, and you got a prize. You know, it's all the fair kind of stuff. And it was a ball. And there were a lot of girls around and we were guys. And so use your imagination. We just had a ball. I mean, you could see that going on today and in all these beach towns in Texas and Florida, same kind of stuff. But back then, it was beer. There were no drugs, and we didn't partake in hard alcohol. But beer was our choice, our choice. But yeah, I said to myself and to those of us who really wanted to make sure that thing, you know, was successful, that we had to get this beer. It was a project, and we would not let ourselves down. So I think it's carried over in life. You set goals, and you try to prioritize what those goals were or are or to be. And at that time, our goal was to have a blast at Geneva on the Lake with a proper amount of beer. So that's where we were. And we did it. Yeah. It worked out short term and it worked out long term yeah. because you've told me a lot about your friends and I've met a lot of them throughout the years that were BAT members with you. And many of them have gone on to lead however you define success, but have been successful in their lives, whether they're doctors or lawyers or in the movie and music industry, right? I mean, they've done very well for themselves. Yeah, it's really amazing to have a group of guys that have been so successful. And I don't mean successful necessarily with money, but that's one definition. But a lot of them have heads of medical departments at hospitals or head lawyers in their own law firms, professors at colleges, deans. We had a few deans, we had a few producers, <laughs> one on HBO, one on the West Coast doing movies. They started their careers in BAT. <laughs> yeah. It's just remarkable. I would love to get some of these guys together and do a podcast where they can go back in time and we can reminisce about some of the other. There, I mean, you could write a book about it about all the mischief, but not always mischief, all the good stuff we did. We were good kids. I mean, we were. We were good kids. We just loved to have a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell me about the makeup of Cleveland Heights, social economic, Cleveland Heights in general. What was the background of Cleveland Heights? Because you're talking about a lot of these individuals going on to do great things in their careers, in their life. Where did they come from? Family, was that important? You know, tell me a little bit about that. Well, Cleveland Heights was like the second generation of where immigrants landed in Cleveland, which was more in the city, more down toward what they called, uh, they call it the Huff area, H-O-U-G-H, which now is a very, Huff is rough, rough area. But as the post-World War II, people moved out into the suburbs and Cleveland Heights is, was an old suburb. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it was like the first ring of suburbs. 
And it wasn't very wealthy. I mean, the wealth went to Shaker Heights and Chagrin Falls and some of the areas east of Cleveland Heights. But those areas hadn't really been developed much when I was a kid. But these are all middle-class people. Some of my friends' parents were Holocaust survivors. They had been a tough life. But the kids, my friends, understood what money meant. A lot of us had jobs. We knew that we didn't want to be working in the brewery for the rest of our lives. Friends working in the steel mill. I worked in the steel mill one summer cleaning up. You know, these are things that you do because of necessity, but also it teaches you that you don't want to do it anymore. I mean, I put fence in one summer, backbreaking jobs like that. You know, I had wanted to help my parents, but I also was teaching myself that I didn't want to do this when I grew up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you hear about the immigrant mindset where they come to America with nothing, very little, and they don't have a choice. They have to make it, right? Because they have a family and they have to develop. And then the first generation, they witness this, right? I think they watch their families, they watch their friends' families, and they understand, to your point, hard work and what hard work is. I'm not saying that there was an entitlement then, and maybe there's more now, and maybe it's more discussed because of social media. But I think you all probably had this ability based on need and necessity to go out there and do whatever you had to do. And I don't know if in the time when you're putting a fence in, if you're thinking long-term, you're just probably thinking to get through the day so I can go get lunch and dinner and maybe have a beer with my friends later, right? And I don't know when that hits you in the summer to say, I don't ever want to do this job long-term, but I understand the need to do it this summer. Well, absolutely. My grandfather, grandmother on my mother's side, they could hardly speak English. She was a tailor, but they put their five children through school. I mean, they educated them. And how do they do that? Who knows? You know, they worked hard and they did it. And so it's a cultural thing, I believe, that trickles down, cultural mindset that trickles down. So I think it's a very important to establish. It's almost like a football team. The culture has to start from the top down, from the ownership, from the administration, general manager, the coach, of winning and being effective and being successful. Yeah. We all knew this. We all knew this. Yeah. Where I grew up, there was a high ratio of Jewish kids, also Italians and blacks. And we all got along great. I left the house after breakfast with my bike and my mom never knew where I was specifically, but she knew I was okay. And she knew if I was either playing baseball or if I went to one of my friend's house, what I would call, but she never had to worry about me. And that's just the way it was. Now, you can't do that stuff. No. You can't. Yeah. So You can't. And you can track people, right? right? You can track your kids, whether Live 360 or Google Maps. I mean, you can yeah. see wherever they are yeah, at any point. I mean, some of these apps even tell you how fast the car is driving. So you know if they're speeding. Right. <laughs> right. It's a different world for sure. These stories, though, that you bring into your book, Altered State of Affairs, I appreciate them, and I know many people would, to understand maybe what it was like and what your priorities were at a certain time, no matter how the stories are shared. And you talking about it today, I think these flashbacks bring a lot. I mean, it's probably funny. You guys probably laugh. Like you think about someone who's a dean at a college and you knew what they were like when they were 15 years old. Yeah. To say, yeah. how is this guy a dean? And <laughs> right, exactly. 
Yeah. Well, you have the same thing. You have friends that yeah, look right. at you and a lot of your friends where they are now, doctors and producers. I mean, it's fantastic. So, yeah. But you all had, most of you and most of us had strong families that knew what was right and what was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Those jobs matter a lot. I actually want to go back though, because we're talking about, you know, I'd mentioned something about being on the playground or being in high school and going through this stuff. And not that long ago, we're all at home during COVID. And that means kids were home. So kids didn't have for a year, two years, didn't have these dynamics to, you know, it's one thing to go to school and learn and academics and be in the classroom environment and further their reading and further their math, all very important stuff. They also didn't have that playground time. They didn't have the time with their peers to go through this stuff. Like we could listen to them talk and like, this is meaningless. Like, why do you care that little Jimmy did this at the lunch table? But those things are super important to the development of a child. And imagine now you going back to that time and you weren't able to go to Geneva on the Lake because Geneva on the Lake was shut down. And you're now dealing with COVID because, you know, and everyone had to stay home. What that could have done to you, to your friends, I mean, it's a little bit off track of like what you talk about in the book, but, you know, we're talking about alternate universes. Like, could you have imagined what life would have been like had you not been able to do that at that time when you were growing up? That is such a great question, and I hadn't really thought about it. You know, I think about it in terms of kids nowadays and your kids not being able to be with their friends, go to school, and have real, real communication. But going back to my days, if I was somehow prevented from having this spectacular time, my time, my friend's time, if that somehow from COVID or some other kind of thing, I would have been mortified because we knew what the heritage of BAT was going back. I mean, it was 50 years when I was there. I mean, it's just unbelievable. We have people coming in and for these reunions in their 90s and telling us about things that they did. So if I was robbed of this, I don't know, it would have been too bad. It would have been a shame. But you know, I don't want to be selfish because I'm just one kid. I was just one kid, one person. And it would have been a shame for everybody. And I can't imagine what's going on now with kids who are being robbed of their, or were robbed of their interaction. I mean, you're only a kid once. You know, it's too bad. It's terrible. Yeah. And we don't know. We don't know how that plays out long term. Like, there was no way to know because I'm sure you had people that could look at what you all were doing and said, these guys are disasters. Like, good luck to them in life. Hopefully they figure it out, but I don't have high hopes for them, right? That's what they, a lot of times you hear that stuff, whether it's from leaders or parents or faculty. And what wasn't being realized is, like you said, they set this aim, forget what the aim was, as long as it wasn't going to put you in prison. And like you had talked about on a previous podcast, like it didn't set you up for disaster. You weren't going to end up dead, most likely. (laughs) That you have this aim and you realize, hey, we can accomplish this. And you set out and you did it. Yeah. And then you continue to do it and you all continue to do it. And you're also looking back because you just had mentioned how, and I was thinking about that as I was talking about it, like BAT goes back. And much like we can think about our ancestors or families or immigrants that had come over to this country with nothing to think like what they had to go through 
to do what they had to do to say, well, we don't want to let them down. Like we can just live our day and keep going and get out of bed every day to say, it's because of them that we're even here today. And no different than the BATs could look to say, it's because of the people that came before us in the BATs that we want to carry on this tradition of excellence and fun and drinking a lot and whatever you all had to do and setting out to accomplish these projects. That's so important because you are here because of them and the heritage. And we refer to this thing in passing on of generation to generation. We call it Lador Vador. And it is. And it's from where we came. And for those who, are not even here yet that are coming. And I talk about this in the book. Personally, my mother's family came from Tativ, which is right outside of Kiev. And because of the ability for them to go to Cleveland, a lot of them settled in Cleveland, and they're called Tativers. And those that chose not to leave, this was the, during the pogroms of the early. 20th century, 1918, 17, 19, when they were getting slaughtered. Those that had the initiative to leave left. Those that stayed died. And I can trace the cemeteries back into Tiv. They actually have pictures of my family's Cutler and Bubar of their graves, the ones that didn't leave. And then there's a cemetery in Cleveland that has the next generation of their graves in the cemetery. You know, but you have this with Irish, Italians, Polish people. Everybody was getting persecuted one time or another. And when they settle in this country, they tend to go to an area where somebody else is already settled that can help them along. And for Cleveland, it was this from this little town. Just fascinating. Yeah. I've always thought that I'm here to reestablish this connectivity, this lineage, this heritage. My great-great-grandparents that I don't even know who sacrificed themselves and never made it to this country, they're still over there. And I watch television now with, you know, Kiev, what's going on with the Ukraine. It's just wild. I mean, crazy. So you got to do it for yourself. But you also, you got to do it for them. <laughs> A little bit. And you do it for the ones that are going to come. They're coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, they are. They're coming. Fast and furious. Yeah. 